Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good to have you all here today, and good to have you guys joining us on, on via the internet, whether it's on our, our application or our app or whatever it is, website and or YouTube or whatever. Gosh, I always forget to clean my glasses until I get up here, and then I see they're all smudgy. Mary, will you please remind me next time? I have to do some embarrassing thing in front of everybody, and you're supposed to spare me that. Oh, anyways, hey, um, before we start, there's, I'm going to say this. We're going to be talking about things, the possibility that there's things in our culture that are considered normal, but that are actually anti-Christ. And it's hard to notice the things in your culture that are normal, but are actually anti-Christ, because whatever is part of your culture is considered normal. Here's an aspect of our culture that I think is anti-Christ. And it's the one that grieves me the most. I think it's insane. I just think it's insane. And it has to do with this, our addiction to violence. Uh, it's, it's unprecedented. If uh, you have friends from, who are in Europe and Australia or New Zealand or anywhere outside the United States, they, they'll say, what is going on with you guys? You guys are going crazy. And so last night we had another mass shooting. And this seems like it's a regular thing. It's becoming kind of a normal. Oh, th- this week's shooting is going to be at this school or that school or that bar or that club. Violence is caused for any number of reasons. Hate crimes. Didn't like your race. A- anti-Semitism is going through the roof. Didn't like your sexual orientation. Didn't like the way you looked at me. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, I think it's, it's really a sign of, the, of, of a deep sickness in this culture. So I, I just want to say a prayer about that, um, and, and prayer and a reminder to keep ourselves, not only our behavior, but our minds and our hearts free of violence, to be cultivating peace, nonviolence not, in, in every area of our life. So pray with me here. Abba Father, uh, sometimes it feels like this culture here in America is just careening out of control um, and so grieving, and we grieve over the violence. We, we are in a place where we do not know the ways that make for peace. As you spoke about Jerusalem, we pray God for all those who are impacted by last night's shooting and, and loved ones who are now in a, in a grieving place. And, and, and so it is for the killings that went on earlier in this week and the weeks before that. Be with those who are hurting. Comfort them. We pray, God, that as you commanded us to pray for our leaders, give those who have responsibility for uh, leading this country, our politicians, Give them the knowledge to know the ways that make for peace. God, breathe sensibility into our leaders so they can work together and, and, and begin to push back on this rampant violence that we have permeating our culture. And Lord, as your people, we ask that you keep us free from violence. Guard our hearts. Let peace rule over our hearts. Help us to always return evil with good. Never retaliate. Help us love our enemies and to swear off all violence in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Needed to get that off my chest before I proceed. So we saw last week that, that Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount kind of assuming sort of a more aggressive tone. And he taps into what's called the two ways tradition. It's a tradition that predates Jesus, it's, it's found in ancient Judaism, where it's a mode of teaching where you, you, you teach by contrasts. And, and so you point out the right way and the wrong way, the healthy way and the unhealthy way, the godly way and the ungodly way. 
And so we saw last week that Jesus says that uh, the road that leads to life goes through a narrow gate, and it's a, it's a hard road, but it leads to life. And there's few who find it. But the road that leads to destruction is wide. The gate is wide, and the road is easy. And so that's the one that most people choose. It's a review of last week. And if you think that that means that Jesus is teaching that, that only a few people are saved and everyone else is destroyed, well, listen to last week's message, because I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. But today, he, he applies this two ways uh, teaching uh, to in another area. He's going to talk about true prophets and false prophets. And, and the true prophets are those who are the advocates for the narrow way that leads to life. And the false prophets are those who advocate for the wide and easy road that leads to death. But they deceive people by calling it good, the road that leads to life. So the road that leads to life is, is, is hard. And part of what makes it hard is that there are false prophets who are always trying to get us off of the road that leads to life and onto the wide and easy road that leads to destruction. So here's the passage. It's Matthew chapter 7. Verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets. Be awake. Be vigilant. Stay awake. Beware of them. Be aware of them. Because these false prophets come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They look good, but they aren't good. You will know them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? Of course not. In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and, and nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's part of the road that leads to destruction. Thus you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. So, False prophets, they look good on the outside. They look like sheep. Oh, sheep are cute. You know, they're just innocuous. They look innocent. But inside, they're ravenous wolves. Inside, they're the kind of people who eat sheep. Um, which means that, that false prophets are master deceivers. That's the whole point. They're master deceivers. And so it's not always easy to tell the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. Uh, it, it's, it, they're very good at masking that. But Jesus says, look at their fruit. Look at what their lives produce. Look at what their teaching produces. Does it produce life-giving things? Because if it's on the road that leads to life, it will produce life-giving things. Or is it producing life-negating things, harmful things, destructive things? Because that's one indication that, if, in fact, these advocates are influencing people to go down a road that leads to destruction. The farther down the road you go, the more you begin to take on the quality of the destiny that you're heading towards. So if you're heading towards life, you'll increasingly be putting forth fruit that is life-giving. Life will be on display. And the farther you go down the road that leads to destruction, the more the fruit, of, of destructive fruit you'll be producing. What is being produced? Is it producing love and wholeness, goodness, for the individual and for society, or is it producing death, uh, oppression, sickness, for the individual and for society? So you know them by the fruit. Now what kind of good and bad fruit are we talking about? Here the Apostle Paul helps us because he also taps into a two-ways tradition. And he does it to distinguish between what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, which is the fruit of life. It, it, it displays life. In contrast to the works of the flesh, which are all about death and destroying people. So here, here, here's, here's what he says about the works of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. 
Now, the works of the flesh, works of the flesh, it just means it, this is the stuff that comes out of our carnal nature. The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and, thing, and things like that. He's just giving these examples of stuff. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he says, those who do such things, he's not talking about occasional slip-ups. He's talking about lifestyle. Those who do these, this is their custom. This is how they live. And those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the reason they won't inherit the kingdom of God is because they're putting on display fruit that is contrary to God's loving nature. Uh, they're developing a character that is incompatible with the loving character of God and the loving character of God's will. And because they're incompatible with God, they'll be incompatible with God's kingdom when the eternal kingdom is set up here in the future. Uh, only, God, only what is consistent with God's love can endure there. Everything else will have to be destroyed. All the things that we just read about in the works of the flesh will have to be destroyed. And so, so these folks don't inherit the kingdom of God. Um, it's all contrary to, to, to the will of God. So one evidence that they're heading down the road that leads to destruction is that they're putting on display destructive fruit. By contrast, here's what Paul says about the fruit of the Spirit. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. We should walk in the Spirit, be guided by the Spirit uh, to put on, to display the fruit of the Spirit. See, these folks will inherit the kingdom because they're cultivating, by the empowering of the Spirit, they're cultivating a, a character that is consistent with the, the God of love and therefore consistent with his kingdom. And the life-giving fruit that they're producing is evidence that they are on the hard and narrow road that leads to life. It's hard because it requires us to crucify our old self with its passions and desires. It's hard, but it's the road that leads to life. And as we've seen in previous messages, the whole thrust of the New Testament is to say, look, it's, it's you either get yourself right with God now or you get right later on, and it's much Worse, later on, later on being that stage between death and, 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 and uh, the eternal kingdom. It's when we come before the judgment throne of Christ. And the fire of God's love refines everything about us that is possibly consistent with God's love, but it purges away, it burns up everything that's not. So if you bring up life-giving evidence, it's, it's evidence that you're going on this hard road that leads to life. So true prophets influence people to get on that hard road that leads to life, and the false prophets influence people to get on the wide and easy road that leads to death, but they deceive people into thinking that that is the road that leads to life. Here's one more thing about false prophets. When we think about false prophets, we, we probably think of like you know, David Koresh or, or, or Jim Jones or you know, some cult leader like that, and those are f- for sure false prophets. But a false prophet is anybody who is in a position of influence and they use that influence to encourage people to go down the wrong road. You see people into thinking that what is true or what is true is false and what is false is true. Those are, those are indeed false prophets. But anyone who has that kind of influence would fall into the category of a false prophet. And see, in the ancient world, all the prophets were religious because the broader culture was religious. And so all the roads had a religious flavor to them, even the wide road that leads to destruction. It was all done under a religious kind of rubric. 
But see, in our culture, which is not religious, we have a secular culture, the prophets could be secular or they could be religious. But they're using their influence to get people to go down the road that leads to destruction. Whether they're secular or whether they're religious, they try to move people away from the way of love and towards the way of self-centeredness. Look at those works of the flesh. It's all about self-centeredness. They influence people to move away from cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, and they influence people to go towards the works of the flesh. They influence people to get away from truth and, and put them in the direction of lies. They influence people to get off the hard road that leads to life and get on the easy road that leads to destruction. So part of the reason why false prophets are so deceptive, now listen to this, part of the reason why they're so deceptive is that they're advocates, the cheerleaders, for the wide and easy and therefore popular road. And whenever you believe something that's popular, that's widespread in the broader culture, whenever you have shared beliefs or shared practices, those always feel self-evidently true because everyone believes it. It's your normal. And so it's, it, it, it's just, you assume that since everyone believes it, this is right, this is good, this is, this is a positive thing. But it's possible to be deceived about that. For entire people groups to be deceived about their normal. In fact, this happens all the time. A couple examples. Uh, in the ancient world, it was very common for cultures to sacrifice their firstborn child to the gods. They thought that was just normal. That's what you need to do. And they thought that was a good thing. Now, we look back on that and we think that's an abomination. That's terrible. Your normal is jaded and jacked because they were deceived. Or you look at, at, at say, pre-Civil War, uh, the, the Christian South where they owned slaves. And you think, how on earth could Jesus' followers who are called to love everybody unconditionally and love everybody equally, how could they possibly own slaves? There's a number of reasons for that, but the bottom line is that was their normal. Everyone's doing it, so most people didn't even question that. This is just self-evident to them that white people were superior to Africans, and therefore it's self-evident to them that, that we should be ruling over them. It's manifest destiny, they used to call it. That white people should rule the world. We look at that and we think, that was your normal, but man, that's a jaded normal. That's a, that's a jacked up. It's because they were deceived. Or you look at Nazi Germany. Millions and millions of people, many of them professing Christians, followed Hitler and the, the, the Nazi socialist movement. And you went, how is that possible? Well, you see, centuries of anti-Semitism in that whole area of Europe, centuries of anti-Semitism, actually going back to the early church, it laid the groundwork for this so that it became self-evident to folks that Aryans were the superior nation and the Jews were the problems. And that just set things up so that when Hitler propose, proposes his final solution, people go along with that. That was their normal, self-evident to them. But look, we look back on that and we say, that was, your normal was jacked up. You were deceived. That was antichrist to the core. So it's possible to believe something as a cultural thing. Everyone shares this and yet to be totally deceived. Happens all the time. And in each of these cases, there were false prophets who kept that fake, jaded, deceptive normal in place. In the ancient world, it was the job of the pagan priests to ensure that the practice of sacrificing the firstborn is always carried out. In the Christian South, pre-Civil War, it was the politicians and, unfortunately, the pastors and other leaders who were the false prophets who kept that practice in place. In Nazi Germany, again, pastors and political leaders kept this propaganda in place. 
influencing people to go down this road that leads to destruction. So here's the the million-dollar question. If these people could be convinced that some aspect of their normal was right when actually it was abysmal, if, if these people could be deceived about the goodness of their normal, then it's possible for us to be deceived about the goodness of our normal. We're not superior to them. We're not smarter than them. We're not more godly than them. We don't know that if we weren't in that exact same position, we'd do exactly what they did. And so we're just as vulnerable to being deceived as they were, maybe more so now that we have this internet and this fake information going on and all the rest. That's why Jesus says, beware, be on guard. If it was self-evident, you wouldn't need to be looking for it. It's possible for us to be deceived. We're just as fallen as them. So we need to ask the question, what aspects of our culture might be considered normal, but they're actually antichrist? We have to ask the question, you know, have we possibly bought into a belief or a practice or an attitude or an outlook that, that seems good and wonderful because it's, it's, it's popular, it's out there, and yet it's deceptive. Actually, it's destructive. You'll know them by their fruit. What fruit does it bear? I'll give two examples. I actually think that there's a number of aspects of American culture, and folks uh, outside of America apply it to your own cultural context as it fits. I can only talk about this one uh, here in America. But there's two aspects of, of American culture that I'm going to talk about. I could talk about a dozen that I think are really antichrist that most people, including most Christians, just say, oh, that's good. That's normal. That's all right. But I, 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 I'll use these two, but they're both very big. First one has to do with sex. And I'm going to talk about sex this morning. Let's have a little talk. Sex. So the Bible teaches that sex is to be reserved for, for marriage. And that's been a kind of a traditional view throughout the centuries in Western culture, it's always to be done in a, in, in a covenantal context with love, a marriage covenantal context with love. Sex and love and commitment were always wrapped up together. Now, this began to change in the 20th century. Uh, it slowly began to unravel until you get to the 1960s, and then we have the sexual revolution. We hit a tipping point there. And so in the 60s revolution, sexual revolution, you have activists and you have academics and you got entertainers and many other people who kind of are the gurus of the sexual revolution, And they're denouncing this traditional view as being oppressive and as being unhealthy and unnatural. They they declare a new normal. What's normal for human beings is that we should be able to have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want, however we want, with however many people we want, as long as it's all consented to. And increasingly, this is the view that's becoming normalized in American culture all over now, not everything about the sexual revolution is bad. Some aspects are really good. In fact, I would argue that their basic critique about the church um, was justified. Because the truth is that the church, on the whole, throughout history, has had a rather negative view of sex. I mean, it, it, it was, the idea was that, that there's something dirty about it, even in marriage. And so if it's possible for you to go without sex your whole life, well, that's, that, that's better. You're closer to God. If you're abstaining from sex, then if you're not. That's why they, around the 5th century, decided that priests, uh, at least in some quarters, they decided that priests should remain celibate. Um, I'm glad that Protestants didn't adopt that practice. Hallelujah. Um, But they had a real negative view of sex. And and then even in marriage, the the traditional view says that sex should only be used for procreation. Uh, Sex, for just the pleasure of it, is is, is sinful. It's, it's, It's indulgent. 
St. Augustine thought that the pleasure of sex was a result of the fall. This guy was jacked up. Uh, he, he, he held that, that if, if, if human beings weren't in rebellion with God, then procreation would be done as calmly as, as you plant seeds in the garden. The husband would just plant the seed like they're planting seeds in the garden. And that, he thought, was better than having pleasure with it. St. Augustine, you are messed up on this one area. Um, yeah, so, 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 so nothing just... And, and don't even, don't even mention the M word, masturbation, because that, I get, in third grade in Catholic school, I heard the, the teaching on, on masturbation, and it was, uh, you know what, I didn't know what it was, but I know I better not ever do that, because you can go blind from doing that stuff, and you can get brain damage from doing that stuff, and the best case scenario is you're going to get warts and pimples. And, 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 you know, parents, please never tell your children that. That will mess up their heads. I'm talking from experience here. Anyway. <laughs> So a new normal, sex whenever you want, however you want, with whoever you want, however many, as long as there is consent. Uh, I, for one, am glad that we're beyond that traditional view that has uh, this negative view of sex. I, that, that needed to go. And, and it, so not everything about the sexual revolution is bad. This part is, is really, really good. Um, but it shows that, that, that in fact, I mean, part, part of the reason why I'm happy to be, that this part of the, the tradition is behind us that negative view of sex is because that view is not biblical. The Bible celebrates sex. Sex is a good thing. It's a gift from God. And it's not just for procreation. Um, oh, it's part of the one fleshing that goes on be- between a couple. And so it's, it's, it's read the book of the Song of Solomon for crying out loud. You'll never look at pomegranate trees the same way. I mean, it, it, <laughs> the Bible celebrates sex. That's a good thing. So the positive view of sex in this respect, the culture now, having a positive view of sex, is reflecting more of God's truth about sex than the traditional view of the church. And, and, and that shouldn't surprise us that sometimes the culture gets it before the church gets it because God's working everywhere. And, and, uh, and so sometimes the ch- church has to learn from the culture. So not everything about this sexual revolution is bad. But, see, the gurus of the sexual revolution... Um, they go way beyond just saying sex is positive. In this outlook, they believe that sex should have no constraints. There's no need for self-control. There's no need for discipline. Uh, In fact, many of these gurus argue that sex is at the core of your identity. It's sort of the essence of who you are. And so to put constraints on your sexual expression is to put constraints on your very identity. And so the very idea that you should be disciplined and have restraints and deny yourself is is seen as being an assault on your personhood. And so liberation means no constraints. Here's a a few quotes of the gurus of the sexual revolution. Uh, Alfred Kinsey says, The only unnatural sex act is that which you cannot perform. So you can't possibly perform an unnatural sex act. But if you can do it, it's natural to do it. Sexual liberation, says Adam Snyder, is at the root of all liberation. And you can understand why. Once you accept that your sexuality is at the core of who you are, well then, until the core of who you are is liberated, nothing else is going to get liberated. Everything depends on the freedom of sexual expression. Or William Sinan says, the most important permanent truth about sexuality is that there may be no important truths about sexuality that are permanent. It's all relative. There are absolutely no absolutes. So we have two roads uh, on, when it pertains to sexuality. You've got a narrow, hard road. 
And in this, this road, sex is wonderful. It's a, it's, it's a gift from God. It's to be enjoyed. It's to be celebrated. It's a precious bond between two people in a covenantal, loving, committed, lifelong context. And it's so unique on this hard road that leads to life. It's so unique and so special that it shouldn't be treated as a common thing. It, it, it's, its uniqueness and specialness and the power of it has got to be honored by being reserved for one person that you give yourself to. That's the, the, the biblical view. And um, it's hard because it requires self-sacrifice, self-control. But see, the fact that you, that you have to sacrifice for it is part of what makes it valuable and so precious and so powerful as a bond between people. That's the narrow and hard road. But the wide and easy road tells that you can divorce sex from love and commitment. It's a pleasure in and of itself. It says that you don't need to practice any sort of restraints, which is why you can have sex with whoever, however, whenever, with however many people you want, as long as there's consent. Um, and the gurus of this revolution are going, yay, liberation, freedom for all, this is the best thing, hallelujah. You got the shackles of, of, of these constraints thrown away. They say it's liberation. This leads to life, but I submit to you, it's a lie. I submit to you, it actually leads to death. Uh, it's destructive. By their fruit, you'll know them. Let's look at the fruit of this. I can just scratch the surface here, but this is an example. You know, when two people come together and have intercourse, there is chemicals that get released in, in, in both of their brains, and those chemicals, biologically, they create a feeling of loyalty and commitment and protectiveness and care. And, and that's... By divine design, it's also the result of this evolutionary process. It's nature's way of bringing people together and keeping them together. But the, we find that those chemicals that get released during sex uh, are, are, well, they're kind of fragile. I, I, I've seen the analogy, that it's like scotch tape, where, where the first time you use it, it sticks really well. The second time, if you then take it off and try to use it again, it sticks less well. And each time you use it, it gets weaker and weaker at, at having stickiness, if you will. So also, research has shown, doing MRI scans on brains and all the rest, that the more partners a person has, the, the, well, they eventually lose their capacity to feel commitment towards them, to feel the need to be faithful and protective. It gets diminished. And this is not a good thing. This is a very, very destructive thing when it comes to families. And so we found that there's a strong correlation between promiscuity, as well as porn on the one hand, and the ability to, to, to be committed to somebody, to feel faithful to somebody. Uh, there's a correlation between how much, how promiscuous you are or how much porn you watch on the one hand. And, and uh, how you can enjoy having sex with one person. The more promiscuous you have been and the, the more you've been indulged in, in pornography, uh, the harder it is to find sexual satisfaction with one live person. And it's because the bar has been set so high for your being able to be turned on, if you're talking about porn, that, that now monogamous sexual life partners seem boring. And so we have this phenomenon going on now where, where kids are actually having less sex now than they did in the 90s or the 80s and even in the 70s. It's amazing. They're having less sex. But it's not because they're holier and more disciplined than, than past generations. It's because they're having far more sex online. Digital sex, it's sometimes referred to. It's, uh, that's preferable to them. It's, it's more exciting. 
Um, and there, there's even, though, I get this from Paul Eddy, who is our resident sexual expert. In fact, I get all these stats from him. He spent all his time doing the research on this. You know, it, it's like they say, those who can do and those who can't do research. So, I love you, Paul. My covenant brother. I know, ba-boom, ching. Hey, listen, we, 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 our lo- insulting is our love language, and I've loved on, loved on him a lot worse than that. So, um, so yeah, uh, buy your fruit, you know them. It, 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 it's... There's a new category, Paul tells me, called uh, people can identify as digisexual. Digisexual. So you've got heterosexual where you're attracted to people of a different gender. You've got homosexual where you're attracted to people of the same gender. And now we've got digisexual where you're attracted to only to folks that are online. uh, Sex through the internet. Um, These are folks who don't want to or sometimes they can't enjoy sex with a living person. It's all got to be digital. That can't be good. Um, these are folks who, because of, there's a correlation between promiscuity and, and pornography on the one hand, and the likelihood that you'll be unfaithful when you get married, and, that, that, and the likelihood that you get divorced once you get married. It's like three times higher. Uh, there's all sorts of destructive things that happen as a result of this. Uh, sexually transmitted diseases are, are at an all-time high, or now they're calling them sexually transmitted infections at an all-time high. Uh, this, the bottom line is that the sexual revolution, while there's been good, good aspects of it that, that we need to hang on to, on the whole, it's been very damaging for individuals and it's very damaging for society. And we're just now beginning to see the destructive force of this. We really don't know the full ramifications of what is it like when you have a whole generation of people that have unlimited access to, to pornography. Uh, and and, and when, they, when, when they confront that at, at, at a young age, I saw... Got a stat from Paul Eddy this week that 80, by the age of 15, 87% of boys in America and 57% of girls have viewed pornography. What happens, to, what does it do to the brain? Uh, I, I know, I'll say this, that, that I, I was exposed to pornography the first time at the age of 13 when I found my dad's stash. Uh, and and uh, had a steady diet of that from 13 to 16. Before I became a Christian, I just said that was just my, my normal. But, but that, that sets things in your brain that, that you've got to be struggling with the rest of your life. I, I think it's, it's a form of sexual abuse when young people view stuff like that. It, it was never, it never meant to be this way. And that damages your brain. And it, it makes it more challenging now to, to, have, to enjoy the sex the way that God in, in, intended it. Um, it's, it's an absolute tragedy. Now here's the thing. God is other-oriented love. That's who God is. That's his essence. So everything God does, he does out of other-oriented love. He does it for our benefit, for our sake. And so when God says, here's the road that I want you to go down, it's because that's the road that's good for us. And when God says, don't go down this road because it's bad for you, well, that's the road that is bad for us. He's got our interest in mind, and it does us well to, to, to pay attention to that. And, and even though the, the gurus of this age and the, maybe the popular culture of this age, and maybe there's some people listening right now who have this sense, that sounds prudish, it sounds oppressive, it sounds restrictive. But in fact, that is the way that leads to life. Uh, healthier marriages, healthier relationships, healthier everything when we do it God's way. Now let me say two other things about this, and then I'm going to move on to my second example. One is this. If, if, if you have been involved in, or maybe right now are involved in promiscuity, and, and maybe involved in pornography, uh, I don't want this to be shaming you. Okay? I mean, this is, look, at, here's the thing. We're, we, all, we all breathe this air. We're all influenced by this. Uh, we're all affected by this, maybe far more than we realize. 
And when I consider the fact that Jesus says, if you look on somebody and lust after them, you do your little imagination game in your head, you've already committed adultery. That is adultery. And so I'm not going to throw stones at anybody because I have to confess that I'm an adulterer. Hundreds of times over, thousands of times over. And probably most of us here would have to say the same thing. So there's no judgment on this. We're all in the same boat together. But here's the thing. As the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to how damaging this is, as we look at the the short term feels great, but the long term is disastrous. As our eyes are open to this, what's important is that you realize that your body is precious and to start turning from that wide, popular, easy road and start turning towards the hard and disciplined road where you've got to crucify your passions. But man, it's worth it. It's worth it. In fact, it's not just the negative of the wide road that you want to avoid, but there's a lot of positives on the hard road that lead to life. Many studies have shown that married couples that are in a solid marriage enjoy sex more than the folks that are out there having multiple partners. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is that there's no pressure on you. You don't have to play this performance game. And how do I compare it to all the others and, and all the rest? There's a strong correlation. I'll just one more fact, and that is between pornography, the use of pornography on the one hand, and girls having issues, with the body image issues. And that's another thing that's going rampant right now. And with that comes eating disorders and all sorts of other things, a lot of negative things. But if you've been involved in that, don't beat yourself up. What matters is that you wake up, the damage is being done, and you turn from it. Second thing I'll say is this. The fact that there's aspects of the broader culture that we have to resist when it comes to sexuality doesn't mean that everything's black and white. That's one of the errors, I think, of the tradition has been that they think one size fits all. Here's a rule, and everyone's got to abide by that same rule. It's not all that simple. There are absolute truths, but how they apply to people can be very varied. And so, for, for example, sometimes things are ambiguous, so it means we've got to think about stuff. Paul says, let the Spirit guide you, right? Well, you only need the Spirit to guide you if things are not quite clear. Spirit, guide us. We're not quite sure what to do. And there are legitimate areas in sexuality where we need to be discerning the Spirit's guidance. For example... There are, among, among Bible-believing Christians, there's a genuine, legitimate, I think, discussion going on about whether or not the church can sanction gay marriages. Uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's a discussion that needs to happen. It is happening, and it needs to be done, most importantly, in love, uh, free from the polarization and the politicization of, of, of the broader culture. In fact, I'll tell you this. Woodland Hills, uh, our, our pastoral staff, has for some time been discussing this very issue. And I'm happy to report that we've been doing it in love. It really has been a beautiful process. And I have sensed God all over this. And we'll be saying more about that in the future uh, as we kind of as we bring this discussion to a completion with pastors. We'll bring it to the congregation. So there are genuine things that need to be wrestled with. But the important thing is this. Uh, by your fruit, you'll know them. What are the fruit? What is the fruit? Is it moving towards love and wholeness and, and the individual and for society? Or is it, is it destructive? Is it harming people? Um, We've got to stay on the road that leads to life. And, and uh, uh, it's, it's vital that we never separate sex from love and from covenantal commitment. That's the core thing. Uh, reserve your body for the one you promise your life to. Can uh, a church sanction gay marriages? All right. Second example I want to talk about. That was sexual immorality. Second aspect of our culture that is probably the most... Antichrist, of dimension of the culture, in my opinion, and also the one that we have absorbed the most. So listen up on this one. I'm talking about consumerism. It is 
so destructive. Look at for the last 200 years in the West, Western culture, we've bought this lie that we can expect life to get better and better and better. We can expect perpetual growth. Uh, you can consume more and more and more. It's, just, it's been an assumption. I was raised with that assumption. It's the myth of eternal progress. Things will always get better and better because humans are so smart. We'll keep on finding ways to just keep on improving our lives. We'll get better and better and better. And see, that myth of perpetual progress conditions us to be consumers because then we want more and more and more. We want it better. We want it faster. We want it flashier. Um, we want the new and we want the improved. We're not content with what we have. We're conditioned to always be discontented and we want more. And the gurus of this, this wide and popular road are the, the, the economists and the advertisers and everybody else who's encouraging us to buy, 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 spend, spend, spend. The whole culture is wired around buy, 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 spend, 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 acquire more. In fact, our economy, our economy, it's a perpetual growth economy, which means it has to be growing to sustain itself. It has to keep on growing. Um, in fact, our economy doubles every 22 years. So in 22 years from now, we have to be consuming twice as much as we are now. And that creates problems. At the same time, there's a widespread assumption here in the West. It's starting to change now, thank God, but, but it's, it's, it's been here for quite some time. The assumption has been that, that, that the earth and the animal kingdom exist for us. And so we, we can take from the earth without worrying about its own well-being, and, and we can use animals uh, for our convenience and put them on industrial farms where they don't live one second of their life in a natural condition. They suffer, uh, but it's more convenient for us. And, but we just have no concern for their well-being. And it's not like anyone's saying, oh, I really don't care about animals or I really don't care about the environment. It's just that's not on our radar screen. Part of our normal is to not worry about stuff like that. In fact, it's intentionally hidden from us. Because if we saw what was going on in, in the industrial farms, well, we might not buy the product anymore. So it's intentionally hidden from us. So we have two roads when it comes to how we treat the earth and the animal kingdom and, and how we view the earth and the animal kingdom. Uh, there's a narrow, hard road. And we've been talking about this in previous messages in the in previous series. Uh, the hard road is the biblical road where God tells us that the earth and the animal kingdom are our responsibilities. Our first mandate is to care about the earth and the animal kingdom. Uh, and we're to love and care for the earth and the animal kingdom. And to love anything means you're willing to sacrifice for it. That's what love means. That's why John says, 1 John 3, 16, here's how we know what love is. Love, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You know love by sacrifice. What are you willing to sacrifice for something? Love, sacrifice is the measure of our love. So we, these two roads, one is hard because it requires self-control. It requires self-restraint. It requires sacrifice. The other one is the wide road. Where you don't care about any of that. You just kind of let it go. Uh, live for yourself. It's all there for you. You can consume as much as you want. Don't worry about how much plastic you use. Go ahead and eat the cow. And don't worry about what suffering the cow had to go through before it got on your plate. It's all about you. And you can have more and more and more. Better, better, better. Tastier and whatever. False prophets. It's, it's a lie. You'll know by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. Now, I, I could hear talk about how destructive consumerism is for us as individuals. It, it, it harms us. We look at everything through the eyes of consumption. And if you're looking through the eyes of consumption, you don't see the inherent beauty of things. You look at a cow and you see a piece of steak, but you miss the inherent beauty of the cow. It, it affects how we view the world and how we view ourselves. It's, it damages our soul. It means that we're perpetually discontent. And so much of the New Testament is about the opposite, finding content, being content with what you have. 
Uh, we sang about it a little bit earlier that, that Jesus is enough. You know, to, to be free of this chasing of the, the goods of this world, that's such a central part of what it means to be a child of God and walking that straight and narrow way. So it's damaging to us as individuals. But as we also saw a couple of weeks ago in our earlier series, you'll know them by their fruit. Consumerism and greed, perpetual chasing, with this apathy towards the earth and the animal kingdom, it has brought us to, we're on the brink of this climate catastrophe. It is, uh, it's destructive. It, that is what's brought us here. And if you don't know about the climate catastrophe that we're coming up on, I encourage you to listen to the sermon on it. We had a, how long was that, George? About four or five weeks, six? Yeah, George gave us an update on how this planet's doing, and it's not doing very well at all. Here's the thing. You can't, you can't build a perpetual growth economy on a finite resource. We, we, we have a perpetually growth economy that needs to be consuming more and more and more, all built on fossil fuels that are non-renewable, and they're running out. So you have a perpetual growth economy based on a perpetually diminishing resource. Do the math. Everything we have, it, you know, look at this technology of the last 200 years has been wonderful. It, it, it's it produced some incredible things. It's lowered human suffering. It's, it's given us all these conveniences and all the beauty and modern, of this modern world. Yay! Wonderful. But it's all been purchased on credit by a credit card, the debt which we must sometime pay. And we keep kicking that can down the road. Our kids will figure out how to pay for it. But that time is coming upon us. It, 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 it's unsustainable. It's a road that leads to destruction. By their fruit, you'll know them. This consumerism is antichrist. And on top of that, it destroys our environment. Bringing these fossil fuels has created a blanket around our planet. And so the planet is warming up at an increasingly alarming rate. And that's where the... It's now we're on the precipice of, of, of disaster. So the call of the church, folks, call, if you're a Jesus follower, the call is to be aware of the false prophets, to look at the fruit of a teaching or position or an attitude or a practice, and ask, does it produce life? Is it on the road that leads to life, or does it lead to death? The false prophets promise paradise. Look around. We're in paradise. We've been trying to create this paradise. In fact, most folks will say, look at the blessing of God. We're so blessed. We're so blessed. You see, <laughs> I submit to you that this is, yeah, there's a lot of blessings here. I'm not going to deny that. But uh, look at the long game. Look at the long term. And it's on a road that leads to destruction. And the call of the people of God is to stay on that hard road, to resist the pull of the false prophets, to resist the pull of the culture, to expose the lie of perpetual growth, and to say, we will live differently. The call of the people of God is to Take care of the earth and the animal kingdom and to be willing to make whatever sacrifices are necessary that will benefit the earth and the animal kingdom. And I, if, if you're a, a, a part of Woodland Hills Church, if you identify with this body, I would encourage you to be living in this question. This is a journey that we're all on. Can, can we put restraints on ourselves? Give up some convenience. Ask the question, what can I give up? What conveniences can I give up? What can I sacrifice that will benefit the environment or that will benefit the animals? And uh, live in a question. Well, we have a, a, a community board now on our website that you can check out where people are sharing suggestions on ways to cut down your use of plastics, ways to cut down your carbon imprint. And um, we had a learning curve about this. It, it, it's, it's a fun, exciting ride. But don't give in to the convenience of the broader culture that says, ah, don't worry about that. Just live for yourself. Now, there's other things we could talk about, other aspects of the culture that are, are, are I think, really contrary to God's will because they're contrary to love. I've already mentioned the violence in this culture. 
It just permeates this culture. It's, it's part of our normal. The individualism of our, our culture. The ongoing racism. The economic inequality. The sexism of our culture. I mean, there's all of these things that are widely regarded as normal. You see, whatever is normal in the culture that is contrary to the normal of the kingdom has got to be rejected. And the normal of the kingdom is defined by Jesus Christ. Amen? So, folks, the road to life is hard. It, it requires sacrifice. Uh, it requires self-control. But it is more than worth it. It is the only way that leads to life. And I encourage us to be aware of that. Be resisting all forces that are contrary to uh, the will of God. Stay awake. Stay committed. Always choose the road that leads to love and wholeness and goodness and resist the road that leads to destruction, however pleasant it may be in the short term. Stay on the straight and narrow road. Stay awake in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, hey, uh, if you are, uh, oh, don't forget we have the Musecast on, on Tuesdays. Uh, check it out where Shauna and Dan and sometimes other guests go a little bit deeper with the message and talk about it. And then check out the gathering groups. Uh, a lot of wonderful discussions are happening there. A lot of wonderful relationships are being created there. Uh, it, it's a good thing, and you can talk about the sermons going deeper with that. And that's about it, right, Mary? Okay, Father, thank... What? Okay, I'm going to pray. I start to pray, and she goes, don't forget prayer. Abba, Father, we thank you, God, for calling us, for redeeming us, for saving us. Um, Lord, we repent for all the ways that we have perhaps unwittingly given into uh, false prophets and false teachings, and it's influenced our life. Uh, help us to wake up to that, Lord. And to have the courage and the strength by the empowering of the Holy Spirit to say no to that and to say yes to the narrow road, the hard road. Help us to be a people who embrace self-discipline and self-control. That we, our character may be conformed to your character uh, and, and that we may put on display your goodness, your love, your character to all around us as we go about this life in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Don't forget GAPS, that acronym. If you don't know what that is, well, I'll tell you next week. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.